People like to say that true beauty is on the inside, that true beauty comes from within. But is that really true? I mean, look around. What is it that people value in other people? Who is it that is plastered on billboards advertising everything from perfume to four-wheel drive trucks? And what seems to be the primary criteria for Hollywood's leading ladies and leading men? It's external beauty, isn't it? Physical looks. So is it really true that true beauty is on the inside? Do we really believe that? Or is it just something we say to little girls who don't get asked to prom or to little boys so that they will behave? Or to even comfort adult women who can't seem to spark the interest of any men? Even as Christians, don't we tell our daughters that true beauty is on the inside and then get their ears pierced, teach them how to use makeup, and buy them the cutest outfits we can find? Do we really believe that true beauty comes from within? And maybe as Christians, we can loosely attach that to the fact that God looks at the heart. And we know that that is a pervasive principle throughout the Scriptures. It drives us. It is foundational to what we believe and how we act. But even that statement is a leap to attach that or contrast that with physical beauty. That's not really what it's talking about. I think the problem is not that we don't believe that true beauty is on the inside, but perhaps that we don't truly define biblically what true beauty is. And then when we do, it's not helpful for those who want to look good on the outside physically because we don't contrast that with, again, actual physical external looks, jewels, hairstyles. Well, this morning, I want to prove to you that true beauty is on the inside, and I will do so by using the Apostle Paul's words, who does not use some spiritual hypotheticals or condescending cliches. He tells us that true beauty is on the inside by addressing a very real problem that existed in the early church that many of you women faced this morning. And that problem is encapsulated by the question that you asked your husbands or yourself when you looked in the mirror, how do I look? 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Finally, there it is. True inner beauty contrasted with external physical beauty. And although we are talking about external versus internal beauty, the context, as all of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is, is within a local church service, a worship service. All of 1 Timothy 2 is giving instruction on how men and women are to behave and dress in a church service. So much of this does not apply to date nights or your personal prayer life as we saw two weeks ago. And in that context, 
we will see how a Christian woman's perspective on beauty can actually influence how the rest of us worship. Three ways women influence church services. Three ways women influence church services. And this influence is directly connected to their understanding of beauty. The first way that women influence church services is the proper dress. The proper dress. Look at the beginning of verse 9 again. He says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. As he transitions to talking about women, Paul uses the word likewise to show us that he is applying what he just said in the previous verses about men in the church. He's now applying this to women in the church. And what he said about men was in reference to those specifically who are leading the congregation in prayer, and they are to be holy of heart and at peace with all men, not succumbing to deep anger or in the midst of arguments and fights. In other words, they are to represent Christ's likeness that all believers are called to, but especially in light of their role in a church service. To put it another way, men are to act in a way that is conducive to corporate worship, and women, likewise, are to do their part to avoid disrupting a service. And the way this applies to women naturally broadens the call to all women in any given church service. And he begins with how they dress. Although we won't unpack it fully until the next verse, all that Paul is saying in verse 9 is to be a reflection of the right heart attitude, inner beauty. In this case, the right heart attitude is shown by dressing in a way that does not distract from the worship of God, and this is very important, by purposely drawing undue attention to oneself or any way that would otherwise be disruptive to public worship. Now he begins by point blank saying women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing. The ESV says, in respectable apparel. The NIV says, dress modestly. And this word adorn in the Greek is a word from which we get the English word cosmetic. It means to arrange or put in order. And in Paul's day, women were more concerned about how they dressed than men were. And as is the case today, There was a greater danger of immodesty or indiscretion with women's clothing than there is or was with men's. And when it came to clothing, you could tell back then what kind of woman someone was by looking at her clothing. Was she wealthy or was she working class? Was she wealthy and wanted everyone to notice? Was she trying to attract attention to her physical features Or was she just trying to stay warm? Because unlike today, you didn't have someone who could work, for example, a minimum wage job and save up enough to buy that expensive bag or dress. That just didn't happen back then. The outer person was clear evidence of their station in life, but also their priorities. Now, regardless of what kind of clothing someone could afford, When it came to church attendance, 
rich or poor, male or female, their choice of dress was to be proper. The word that Paul uses here conveys the ideas of well-arranged as well as modest or moderate. So, on the one hand, one is not to dress provocatively or overly showy, as we'll see further explained in a moment, or on the other hand, just thrown together with no thought or care. Either way, for men and women, we need to be moderate and careful in how we dress for church. Some tend to think that church is the time to impress people, so they overdo it with how they dress. They are overly flashy. Others, and I think this is more common in our current American church culture, people dress down for church, over-spiritualizing this and overreacting to the historical American church trend of dressing up for Sunday service. But there is a middle ground, and that middle ground says, I'm going to dress in a way that honors the Lord and does not draw unnecessary attention to myself. But what exactly does this look like? Fashions and societies change all the time. And so we take cues from our culture as to what is flashy, what is grungy, and what is a good in-between. And the crucial guidelines that Paul gives us are that women are to adorn themselves, he says, modestly and discreetly. The word modesty or the concept of modesty involves the principles of shame and reverence. So, to dress modestly involves a holiness of heart that would feel embarrassed if they were to detract from others' worship. And in the same vein, they themselves dress in a way that shows reverence to the Lord. Foundational to modesty is a heart of humility. A heart that does not seek attention to oneself in the context of a church service where all attention, and this is the main point, is to be on the Father. And humility in the sense of respecting the family nature of, of, of a church service. We're not trying to one-up one another in how we dress, but to humbly come before the Lord corporately as His pure and holy bride. So when we talk about modesty, we are always including the external look, displaying feminine reserve when it comes to sex appeal, not having to accommodate every potential thought of those struggling with lust, that would be impossible, but still being wise in what is revealed on your physical body. And you can see immediately why this is being addressed to women and we'll see more in the historical context, but men just don't have as much of that ability to cause the opposite sex to stumble by how they dress or by what is revealed. So this is why outward dress is specifically dealt with or dressed by Paul with women. We as men just don't have the same ability to do so, at least not with what is culturally accepted to wear in public. But, back to the concept of modesty, in addition to outward appearance, this word also refers to the inward principles of things like self-respect, honor, sexual reserve, conscience, and consideration of others. 
Ultimately, this isn't about colors, patterns, or fabrics, but Christian character and love for the brethren. What we would say today is that is in good taste or that is in poor taste. As with anything related to morality, this must be judged against Scripture rather than cultural norms. Base your dress on the latter, and you are in trouble with way more than how you look. Paul adds that women are to also adorn themselves discreetly. This is a word that has a sexual nuance and refers to self-control, which is how the ESV translates it, or self-mastery, the ability to control your passions and desires. And when our culture refers to women and their clothing, the word discreetly would involve words such as decency or moderation. As with the word modesty, the principle of dressing discreetly has sexual connotations. And despite what certain individual women outside of the church may claim, we know full well that women, some women, dress in a certain way to look sexy, to have sex appeal. And what Paul is saying is that is not appropriate in a church service. And the restraint called for here comes through a submission to the guidance of the Holy Spirit as well as the Bible, and this in turn leads to a proper discernment when it comes to your desires. Whether that is to purposely catch the eye of others in the sphere of sexual attraction or just personal ego, the one who dresses discreetly is the one who puts those motives away, especially when they come to church. There's nothing wrong with wanting to dress in a way that makes you look good. There's nothing wrong with that. Or even to want to make yourself physically attractive to your husband or if you're single, to the single men in the church. But the church service is not the place to overdo it. Dress like that to a party. Dress like that on a date. Not at church. To be clear, I'm not saying it's okay okay to dress in a way that is immodest or revealing outside of church, but there is a particular consideration for others when you are at church church. You want to go into a lecture hall where everyone is quiet except for the professor and blast music on your phone because it would distract the students from the lecturer. You wouldn't start speaking loudly and take a phone call right when the proctor says you may begin the exam because it would keep the students from focusing on the test material. And when it comes to church, where part of our worship is greeting and interacting, in other words, looking at other people and other people looking at you, then you don't want to dress in a way that keeps people from focusing on serving and worshiping the Lord. Ultimately, this is a matter of your spiritual choices and inner holiness. In fact, the word clothing here refers to physical clothing but also has a wider sense of demeanor and behavior. Male or female, we are to wake up on Sunday mornings and get ourselves ready to worship from our hearts to our heads internally, 
from our heels to our hair externally. And a simple rule is this. If you are preoccupied with how you look, then you will inevitably cause others at church to be preoccupied with how you look. Again, don't come disheveled, but neither should you come like you're out at a party to count down to New Year's Eve. And as we finish off verse 9, we see what some of the Christian women in Ephesus were wearing to church. Although it is a bit extreme, we must be careful that we don't throw out the general principles of modesty and discreetness simply because we're not being as outlandish as what we're about to read. However, we can see from Paul's example an extreme case of how dress, including hairstyles and jewelry, can be a distraction. So our second way women influence church services is the pretentious distraction. The pretentious distraction. He goes on and gives a very concrete example for their culture of what it means to have proper clothing, to dress modestly and discreetly. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. So at this time, in the context of when he was writing, so this is a different land and a different time, it was common to have very elaborate hairstyles, lavish jewelry, and very expensive clothing. And one of the problems with this was that these were not simple to put on. For example, what Paul is talking about is not that someone went to the hairdresser earlier in the week and their hairdo is distracting six days later. Nor is this just about pulling something out of your jewelry box and clasping it onto your neck. Or the fact that the most effort you probably needed to get your dress on this morning was that it was hard to zip up the last few inches. What Paul and his readers would be familiar with took a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of effort. So let's take a look. We know that both Jewish and Gentile women back then were known for their elaborate hairstyles. This was not a simple braid. This was a woven or plaited hairstyles that sometimes had gold and pearls entwined into the braids. This was, of course, a way to indicate and show off one's wealth. Perhaps even more than it is today, gold and pearls were highly prized by women back then. They were used in earrings, rings, clothing, hair, and even sandals. And by the way, back then, pearls were ranked at the top of all valuables and had a worth that was double that of gold, and women were putting this in their hair. So just imagine holding your braids in place with clips made of solid gold and weaving the equivalent of diamonds into your hairstyle and thinking that's appropriate to come to church. All of this would also be incorporated into what he refers to as costly garments or costly attire. This isn't just about a dress that is expensive because you chose a particular designer or decided to go to a nicer department store. This would be ornate and jeweled and took quite the effort to get on and get set, perhaps requiring the help of two or more servants to get dressed. Again, this is not calling for a complete absence of external beauty. 
But imagine what you have witnessed or even experienced in getting ready for your wedding day. The bride and the bridesmaids often wake up and show up at the venue hours before the groom and groomsmen because of the elaborate makeup and hairstyles. Now imagine doing that every Sunday morning to go to church. You would have to seriously question what your motives are. Fine for a wedding where the focus is supposed to be on you. Not appropriate for church. Now I get that no woman is going to spend the time and money on their church attire as they did on their wedding day. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook simply because you would never do that. What the priority must be is the internal holiness and focus on the Lord. Even if you don't have expensive jewelry or expensive flashy clothing, you need to evaluate what your priorities are, especially when it comes to how you dress and how you do your hair. Even if you feel like you're not pretty enough, that too is an indication that you're focusing on the wrong thing. There's a time and a place for everything. And for what Paul is describing here, church is neither the time nor the place. Years ago, when I was in seminary, a friend of mine who was still in college, just in college, lost his mother. I was also friends with many of his closest friends, his inner circle of buddies, including his best friend. His best friend was also part of our ministry, and so naturally he was also at the funeral. This best friend was someone who, to put it graciously, had a tendency to seek attention. Perhaps the worst example of this was at our friend's mother's funeral. We were walking to our cars. The casket had been lowered. The funeral was technically over, but obviously the grieving was not. We were still there to support and to encourage. It was not a time to make jokes, but to be somber. And as I walked to my car, I heard a loud revving and a small group of collegians surrounding the best friend. Just minutes after a husband, a son, and a daughter watched their mother's body lowered into the ground, there was the son's best friend showing off his brand new motorcycle in the parking lot of the cemetery and revving the engine. Look, it's great you finally got the bike that you were telling us about. We are happy for you. I hope it brings him much happiness and excitement and fun, but a funeral is not the place to show it off. Is it wrong to have a motorcycle? No. Is it wrong to want to show it off to your friends? No. Is it wrong to do so at a funeral? Absolutely. Completely unacceptable, rude, inconsiderate, and out of line. Why? Because the point of the time and place where we were 
was to mourn. It was to support. It was to focus on the deceased and her family, not draw attention off of those and onto oneself. And that's why extravagant hairdos, ornate jewelry, and flashy clothing is not appropriate at church. The point of the time and place of where we are is to worship. It is to focus on the Lord and His family, not to draw oneself, or draw attention rather, off of those and onto yourself. Not by looking like a princess, but also not by looking like a bum. To a certain degree, I get what my friend was doing. He had something new and fun that he wanted to show his friends, and here was an opportunity where he knew many of his friends would be. And in the same way, I can appreciate the fact that all people, that of all people, you want your Christian friends, your Christian family to be the ones who see your new do or your new dress. It shows a camaraderie. It shows a closeness that you shouldn't seek elsewhere. I am encouraged by the fact that you don't have a different personality among different people, such as you leave certain things out for non-Christians and certain things out for Christian friends. You want to share your excitement with other believers. But we need to be careful because whatever it is, not at church. Not at church. I feel in our day and age we have lost the reverence and the importance of what this means. We don't want to be legalistic and we want to be biblical, so we say things that are theologically and biblically accurate like the church is not a building, it's a people, and that is true. And that's why I have yet to talk to anyone in our congregation that cares that we are in a high school and not our own building, that we have to put up signs instead of one permanently plastered on top of a church building because church is us. But we can take that too far and take what we're doing here lightly. Not that we should shut off the lights and be silent and kick out the babies and not breathe, not make any noise. But the scriptures are so clear of the importance of the gathering of the saints. And as we live in our secular jobs and some of us with our non-Christian families, we understand how refreshing and important it is to be here. And we want to celebrate the things that God has given us throughout the week. But everything that God has given you, whether it's a new dress or a new motorcycle or saving you from cancer, the reality is we are here for Him. And we need to focus on Him and not do anything that would draw attention off of that. I like how one commentator put it, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. He says, flashy luxury is out of place among sinners seeking the mercy of God. Now we know that this is more than just outward appearances. Although woven throughout our time this morning, Paul has yet to directly tell us his main point. 
And his main point here is his main, main point in so many other places in his writings, and it is this. What is expressed outside is to be a reflection of godliness inside. That's ultimately the point. And this will be unpacked for us in our third and final point. We have already seen two of three ways women influence church services, the proper dress, the pretentious distraction, and finally, the proclaimed demeanor. The proclaimed demeanor. Look at verse 10. But rather by means of good works, talking about their adornment, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Again, what is expressed outside is to be a reflection of godliness inside. Now, I've already mentioned several times that the goal of a worship service is to create an atmosphere and an attitude in which we focus on God. We must all do our best to keep the focus where it belongs. We've also touched on the inner attitudes of humility and modesty. But in this context, those are ultimately about how a woman dresses. Now, Paul moves on to an overarching characterization of all Christians. And here he contrasts this with the overemphasis on external appearance, especially among women. He says, rather than dressing in expensive hairstyles and lavish attire, dress yourselves with good works. The word but contrasts good works with immodest attire, thus turns us from the negative to the positive. And the adornment that Christian women should primarily be concerned with is not physical, but spiritual. Spiritual adornment. And that spiritual adornment is seen in good works. Good works or good deeds are a major theme in the pastoral epistles, which makes sense because the pastorals are focused on both the church elders' life as well as the way the church elders are to instruct the churches to behave. So naturally, there's a lot of emphasis on external good behavior, good works. But what is a good work? Well, first, we see that it is proper for a woman who is making a claim to godliness. In other words, any woman who is a professing believer. To make a claim in the Greek means to make a public announcement. What this means practically for us is that if you call yourself a Christian, you are making that profession public. Paul says that good works are, quote, proper for this individual. It is fitting. It is becoming. Good works, then, highlight who this person is. What you profess should be reflected, as we've already seen, in how you dress, but also in how you behave. And I want to point out Paul's particular terminology. He doesn't say that it is fitting for Christians or believers. He uses the phrase, making a claim to godliness. Godliness is reverence, reverence to God. There is a genuine and biblical fear of the Lord in her heart. There is a respect for Him and His Word. And just as when you truly respect anyone, 
your behavior toward them will be reflective of that respect that is in your heart. When it comes to the Lord, any behavior is behavior toward Him. And that makes our relationship with Him unlike any other relationship you have. You can truly respect your boss, but you really only need to show that or live that out from 9 to 5 on weekdays because he is only your boss from 9 to 5. But everything the believer does is within God's calling for us. He is always present. He is our boss 24-7. You would never express this kind of respect for your boss and then disrespect him with your actions. You wouldn't tell him that I respect you, you're a really good boss, you run our team fairly and I will do whatever you ask and then right in front of him blatantly disregard the workplace manual that he wrote and hand delivered to you. And what Paul is saying is that a Christian woman is a woman who has publicly claimed her allegiance and submission to God. And her behavior in his sight, which again is 24-7, should reflect this in that she does not blatantly disregard or disobey the life manual that he has written and hand-delivered to her. So, now we go back to the original question, what is a good work? Good works are very practical in nature. These are not something that are considered good by the world's standards, which means that a Christian good work is not just good in appearance. It's not even just good because its results are good or it has a positive effect on other people, even saving a life or giving them comfort is not a full description of a good work. Good works are genuinely good according to the standard of God as found in the Scriptures. And we know that the goodness of the Christian's deed is primarily found within her heart and her mind. And that's what good means. We cannot just evaluate it based on what other people see, how other people are affected, even if there is a very good result, changing society for the better, if your heart was not in it, it is not a good work according to the Lord. But we must not dismiss the work part of the phrase, good work. Everything I've described about being internal and for the Lord is good. The word work still stresses that there is some sort of benefit externally for other people. So the external still matters, which makes this fitting in the context of how we dress. And this reminds us that as important as desires and motivation are, they are not complete without the corresponding behavior. Not just good, not just a good heart or good desires, good works. James 2.26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The commitment to God is dead, 
if there is no external performance of that commitment. Now we know that all Christians are called to do good works. It is the very reason we are created and saved in Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship. It's a Greek word from where we get poem. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You want to know why you were saved? For good works. You know, want to know why God created man and woman? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Titus 2.14, rather. Titus 2.14. Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He died so that we would do good works. Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, he's speaking of the gospel, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. One of the most prominent verses, many of you have memorized it, regarding the Scriptures is 2 Timothy 3.16. Please turn there with me. 2 Timothy 3.16. In the branch of theology called bibliology, which is the study of the theology, the study of the Scriptures, how we got the Scriptures, why we believe the Scriptures, this is the key passage. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired. Many, have heard, many of you have heard before that that word inspired is the word theo or theo, God, Panustas, which means wind or breath. All Scripture is inspired means all Scripture is breathed out by God. Continue reading. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we look to this verse and say, there it is. All Scripture is inspired by God. And it is inerrant and it is profitable for everything that we would use the Bible for. Teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness. Now look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, put this all together. And what Paul wants is for Christians to act like Christians. And as far as a lady's priorities go, especially in a church service, what really matters is not how they look on the outside, but what they are on the inside. And we understand that what is on the inside, if it is true, if it is real, it will manifest itself in Christian behavior. In other words, true beauty is on the inside. This is a tough concept for many of you. Some of you 
having read ahead or heard this passage preached before, were bracing yourself for some sort of anti-women misogynistic series. And the problem is, is not what you have drawn out of the Scriptures, but the lies out there that you have believed. Not so much about who you are as a woman, but what Christians claim to profess about women. And the challenge is we come to these passages, and if this was hard, wait till next week, ladies. If you come with preconceived notions that I am not equal to men in God's eyes, that the Scriptures look down on women, that submission is a bad thing, then you're not going to hear a word I say, especially next week. Because all you want to do is pick a fight. And I would guess that even as we have explained this passage, it means a lot more than what some of you might have thought. It's not just picking on women. It's addressing the gender that has the ability to distract by what they wear. What do you prioritize? Again, Ladies and men, please dress well. This is not a call to follow the path of John the Baptist. Praise God for running water and soap. Shower. Wash your hair. Dress nicely, appropriately. But the point is, what are you prioritizing? And especially, just a couple hours a week, what are you prioritizing when you come in here? Is it to show off? Is it to focus? Is it some sort of feeling of inferiority because of how you look? What do you prioritize? I shared this with the men this last Thursday. I'm going to share it with all of you. Two or three weeks ago, in the context of addressing how certain men are to behave in a church service, I went on a minor tangent and I said this phrase. A good summary of what we're saying here is men step up. Act godly. Be leaders. And then I said this. I said godly women are attracted to godly men. And that was addressing the single men. And in the context of that passage, the point, of course, was to convict the men. But I believe that statement should be more convicting to the single women. Because what are you attracted to? Now, I get it. The Lord has given us preferences. You want to marry someone you are physically attracted to, sense of humor, personality, all of those things. But what is the priority? I talk to Christian women, and the first thing out of their mouths is a height, an income, and ethnicity. Are you attracted to godliness? Because if your priorities are skewed in what you are seeking in a spouse, then you can't tell me it's not going to overflow in what your priorities are when you are with the family of God in the midst of a church service. True beauty 
is on the inside. Three ways women influence church services, the proper dress, the pretentious distraction, and the proclaimed demeanor. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Let's pray.